It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. All right, welcome to the It's Going Down podcast. Um, we're doing a series of discussions uh, currently with people that are from uh, Gaza or Israel or are currently there or have expertise in the area um, as a way to sort of deal with some of the gaps that we notice in the political conversation that's happening kind of domestically in the US, right? Um, very typically, as Americans tend to do, um, there's been this tendency to either fall back into simplistic ideological understandings or to try and graft sort of existing narratives onto what's happening or to use what's happening politically. Um, but in reality, what's going on is far more complex um, than something as simple as a conflict between Israel and Hamas, right? Uh, so today, uh, we're going to be talking to a friend of the show um, about what's happening there. This is going to be the first of you know two or three interviews that we're going to be doing, um, just kind of talking in detail about you know what is happening and how it happened and some of the sort of strategic and tactical implications of this. Um, so yeah, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Adi Kalai. Uh, I have a YouTube channel called. Rev and Rev, that's uh, R-E-V and R-E-V-E, where I post uh, video essays about theory and social movements and other things. And uh, I've worked in uh, some in journalism and uh, currently doing a PhD on military philosophy, specifically on counterinsurgency, uh, across a few linguistic traditions. So also Hebrew, uh, which is my mother tongue, and Arabic, which uh, I learned starting with solidarity work in Palestine and um and later in various programs. Cool. It's wonderful to have you. I'm happy you could take time to talk to us. Um, so I think where I want to start, uh, just in a very broad sense, um, you know, so far the the narrative has been one which has been, I think, on one level, very simplistic, right? It's been this narrative that's been framed as a sort of Israel versus Hamas conflict. I think on another level, um, the narrative has sort of missed a lot of the sort of nuances and complexities about how we even got here um, and sort of frames this almost in sort of a September 11th kind of, of uh, sort of scenario, right? Where kind of this attack came out of nowhere, something like that. Um, so I think we should probably start with what actually happened. Um, so starting with, you know, the initial attack, sort of what, what happened and, and sort of what were the initial kind of responses to, to the initial events? Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, so just commenting on the simplistic way in which in which it is framed, I completely agree with you. Um, I would also say there is um, there is a certain counterinsurgent interest in framing um, the escalation as an escalation between Israel and Hamas, uh, rather rather than between you know. Um, Israel and the Palestinian people and with the Palestinian resistance fighting back. So um, so I would frame what happened um, as an insurrection, uh, right? As, uh, as a meticulously, carefully planned attack by armed factions in Gaza um, that was followed by also in a, a popular uprising. Uh, and now going into, right, a, a genocidal... Um, military escalation uh, that, you know, pushed by Western powers. Um, so I guess that's sort of uh, right, the, the broader story. Um, most concretely, you know, uh, working, I guess, working our way forward into right, the present moment where we're looking at, you know, over 11,000 Palestinians in Gaza being killed in bombings, half of them children. So, so bearing that in mind, working forward, the zero hour of this current escalation is um, October 7th, 2023, uh, around 6 a.m., where, uh, again, a few armed factions, uh, led, of course, most prominently by, uh, by Hamas, Harakat al-Muqawam al-Islamiyah, right, the, the uh, Islamic resistance movement, um, but also um, with participation from the PIJ, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and uh, and also the PFLP, uh, which is uh, the Palestine, uh, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is a revolutionary socialist organization. Um, right, they launched uh, an attack on sea, land, and air. Um, short-circuiting Israel's surveillance capacities. Um, so, so using a certain like long-planned and, and careful uh, sort of counter-surveillance and uh, and intelligence operation, um, and attacking uh, first with uh, what Israelis are calling a um, a diversion from the like a, an uh, a missile diversion, so um, so a very extensive um, missile attack, and then um, attacking uh, Israel's uh, panoptic surveillance systems and their cameras. So they have they had cameras uh, sort of ab- above Gaza. They had kind of uh, three central uh, aerial cameras that um, uh, that malfunctioned actually in the weeks leading up to the attack. Uh, and also using um, drones, like uh, commercial drones, to uh, to drop explosives on um, on cameras around Gaza, uh, and you know rendering them out of service. Some of them have like a kind of robotic functions, like like robotic sentries that they they see a person approaching and, and they shoot them and sort of in in this kill zone on the outer Gaza Strip. But they were um, right, they were dismantled. Uh, and this was followed by uh, attacking the fences in multiple points, um, breaching the fences. So 
So first blowing them up in multiple points with kind of specialized explosives and then laying down metal railings over which armed motorcycles, uh, armed motorcyclists would ride rapidly. And then heavy construction equipment would move in and expand the breaches and then pick up trucks and sedans and could drive through carrying, carrying more armed fighters. Uh, and they also had, um, they had some teams um, go on sea, some teams go underground uh, and oh, probably. Um, and, uh, and also uh, some teams, you know, sort of iconically flying over the fences and under Israel's uh, Iron Dome missile systems. There are some amazing videos where you, uh, you, can, you can see a paraglider um, like a like a little fly on the screen flying under um, Iron Dome missile systems that that are being launched uh, uh, over his over his head, you know. Um, and okay, and with these forces, they completely overwhelmed the Israeli defenses across many locations simultaneously. So they attacked. Um, uh, like a host of military bases and outposts. Uh, and also, um, I think the number is 22 Israeli settlements, Yeshuvim, around, um, around the Gaza Strip, so in, the, in what's called the, the Gaza Envelope. Um, and they kidnapped over 200 people, uh, around 240 people. Uh, and uh, they killed many Israelis, and including the mayor of, uh, of the kibbutzim in the Gaza Envelope. So... Uh, it's called the, the Shara Negev Regional Council. He apparently went out uh, armed to, to confront them, and he was killed in the fighting. And uh, many high-ranking army officials were also killed, uh, police officers, uh, also a team of Shin Bet officers. So this would be an equivalent of, like, uh, FBI agents. And qualifying this, um, there were also thousands of Gaza residents or inmates, right, thinking of Gaza as, as an open-air prison, um, who joined the attack and what and what I think became an an uprising, and in the right in the footage of that of of that first day, or really those first two days, um, you can see people from Gaza crossing the fence by foot, um, um, or you know on bicycles or on crutches, um, looting military bases and settlements, um, and even participating in the attack. So you also in Israeli eyewitness accounts, you can hear that like um, like youth with stones following um, like uniformed, well-equipped fighters. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, <clears throat> you know, hearing a lot of this, there's two narratives, uh, both of which have a lot of uh, validity to them. Um, one being the this was very sophisticated narrative, right? Which um, probably in a conversation or two, you know, we were talking before we started recording, we're going to get into that in a lot more detail, um, sort of on a tactical level, kind of how things like this were, were kind of organized, right? But um, I think the second narrative, which is also uh, incredibly relevant, is they were able to take out cameras. But there doesn't seem to be, you know, like as an American, when I imagine the area outside Gaza, I imagine there being, you know, a substantial number of military personnel there. And that does not seem to be what was going on. 
Um, and I think a really big question, uh, and I think one that kind of gets us into a little bit of discussion of, of what preceded this, is how did how did that happen, right? How did we get to a point in which there's a far right wing government in Israel that you know makes this art genocidal argument and then leaves the entirety of of the wall of Gaza more or less defended by robots, right? It it just it does not seem to make a lot of sense. So what what is going on there? Like how did that situation sort of emerge? Right. So I mean, this is a this is a huge question that is plaguing uh, specifically Israeli society right now, um, with a lot of uh, a lot of blaming, um, a lot of kind of personal attacks you're seeing around uh, the the Israeli political establishment, um, and a lot of uh, a lot of popular rage from the Israeli populace on like and uh, on, on you know the those settlements being left essentially defenseless, right? Uh, being guarded by robots, and and there are multiple reasons for this, um, and uh, and and this is still being investigated. So so what happened is still contested, and more and more details are being uh, revealed by the day. Honestly, right. So we're going to have a better understanding of this as um, you know as as time advances, as we're better able to see through the fog and the smoke, but. Um, um, but some of it is uh, a kind is a kind of strategic. Um, uh, some of the of this kind of strategic uh, short circuiting of surveillance that I um, that I was talking about that involved um, um, pal- the Palestinian resistance creating uh, a, a mirage that they were deterred, right? Um, Indicating that uh, that all they want is like uh, economic advancement, um, trying to negotiate all um, you know all kinds of um, permits for like limited permits for uh, for workers, um, and um, creating the appearance that they weren't there. Right, thinking about uh, about Sun Tzu, like when you're close, make the enemy believe that you're far away. When you're far away, make the enemy believe that you're close. So they successfully did that, right? Um, and, uh, and in the process, right, this, uh, this sort of, uh, this being a, a right-wing government led by like settler or like almost taken over by settler factions, um, this meant that a lot of resources and energy was focused on, uh, deepening, um, the settlement in the West Bank. And when I'm saying settler factions in this case, I'm right. I'm talking about, um, like West Bank settlers, so uh, the the lands that were uh, occupied in 1967, in which there is an ongoing ethnic cleansing operation. So entire divisions over the past few months were moved from uh, from the south, were moved from the Gaza envelope to the West Bank to to facilitate further land grab in the West Bank. Yeah, so that's um, that's some of it, and another part of it is. Um, is uh, you know there there are these there are these uh, rival um, military doctrines, um, and we can call one one of them, um, or some would call one of them counterinsurgency, and the other one uh, RMA, Revolution of Military Affairs, right? Using uh, using military terminology, um, and this latter one has been the dominant 
military doctrine in Israel over the past couple of decades, um, really since the late 90s. And it, and it stresses um, technological advancement, uh, high tech, um, use of, uh, of AI, robots, drones, um, aerial superiority, a kind of warfare by remote control um, with minimum, uh, right, minimum engagement, minimum risk to, um, to our forces, right? So uh, what happened on October 7th was that this, uh, what they're calling in Hebrew, concepcia, <laughs> this military concept, uh, or, this, or this military uh, conceptualization has completely collapsed. Um, so, um, so this kind of Netanyahu-led conflict, uh, sorry, Netanyahu-led uh, concept or strategy. Uh, so, right, he talks about this uh, this idea of a durable peace, um, and th- that's the title of his uh, of his only book, um, a, a durable peace. And apparently, he, st- he still uses it in in his speeches sometimes. Um, this idea that you could uh, that there will never be actual peace with uh, with the Muslims because there's this uh, zero sum uh, game with uh, the Islamic civilization and uh, and Judeo Christianity and um, and it's based on a kind of uh, uh, his own kind of uh, a historical thoughts and um, and and therefore what the only thing we can do is uh, just keep building our power and manage the conflict indefinitely. And that's been his, um, and that's essentially been like Israeli statesmanship and Israeli strategy over the past two decades. And this just collapsed very dramatically on October 7th, right? So um, so we're seeing um, these two competing strategies coming in to fill this vacuum, this strategic vacuum that is... Um, uh, that is now um, that is now plaguing Israel, and these two competing strategic visions, I, I think, are um, are um, like American-led uh, counterinsurgency. So, kind of, um, and sort of, or the Americans are pushing very hard for this. Uh, Blinken has been talking about it. Biden as well, like pushing for. A resuscitation of uh, of the you know quote unquote two state solution, um, and which would involve instituting some kind of um, some kind of governmental pseudo state structure in in Gaza as well that would uh, manage uh, civilian life there and be used to further isolate the insurgents and uh, and destroy them right or attempt to. Um, and the other vision is, uh, is a kind of full-fledged genocidal vision um, led, I, th- I think, most prominently by uh, uh, by um, a minister called uh, Bezalel Smotrich, who, uh, who articulated this plan a few years ago. It's called uh, the Decisive Plan, Tochnit Achra. And that's kind of, that's a transfer plan uh, where the idea would be to right to displace two and a half million uh, Gazans and to Sinai and um, and uh, yeah and repopulate Gaza or with uh, with settlers or yeah or 
you know, uh, replace the the native population with settler population. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, got it. <clears throat> yeah. We were talking before uh, we were recording a bit about some of the strategic tensions that this raises, right? Um, that the approach seemingly had been, you know, as you said, management. That they were, you know, it, this slogan that Gaza is an open air prison <clears throat> um, gets understood in a lot of cases, I think, somewhat superficially, um, because prisons aren't just about confinement, but they're also about management and visibility. And you can really see the ways in which Israeli government strategy, especially in building the wall, right, um, and in the siege of Gaza in general has been really grounded in this notion of management and containment and visibility. And now that that's all broken down, there seems to be this other problem where now in order for them to engage in regime change, more or less, uh, they're going to have to go into Gaza, right? And, you know, after the war in Iraq or towards the tail end of the war in Iraq, sort of after the surge, after it became really clear that... um, U.S. political goals were not going to be met there, that they were going to lose, right? Um, And that really the question was a question of managing what that meant. Uh, And they started kind of withdrawing slowly, like this started happening under Obama. Um, In the military, there was all this discussion going on about uh, the implications of this, right? Just sort of like after Vietnam. And one of the things that was debated and still is debated is the role of on-the-ground forces in something like counterinsurgency. So, you know, one school, which is much more connected to, like, the RMA school of thinking, um, is making the argument that you can manage all of this stuff remotely, that we can fly enough drones and we can have enough surveillance that, you know, if they need to take something out 16 hours away, they can do that, right? And that that's enough. And the counter-argument, which is often sort of organized around reflections on things that happened in Yemen, for example, uh, where there weren't American troops there, but there were a lot of airstrikes and things like that, um, is that they weren't actually able to manage the conflict, that they were killing a lot of people, but it wasn't actually fundamentally changing anything. It was sort of reshuffling what was going on on the ground, but it wasn't eliminating any of the core circumstances that created a group like Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or, or something like that. And it seems like, you know, Gaza is one of the most densely populated places on earth, right? There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of tunnels that nobody knows necessarily where they even are, at least in the Israeli military. Um, What does that mean, right? It seems like they've hit a bit of a strategic impasse and there doesn't seem to be a clear way forward. Um, And so what has that meant operationally so far, right? I think we've seen sort of at least it's felt to me almost halting, right? That it felt like they were going to go in, you know, full bore and wipe everything out. And then they didn't. Um, they have been airstriking everything into the ground, but they haven't full, like gone full on in ground invasion, at least not entirely yet, right? That's starting to change. But sort of what is going on, do you think, in, I think, a number of areas? One, strategy like what are they thinking what what do you think they will try to do like what is the thinking behind what they're trying to do and i think the second thing and this is almost a separate question but how is that connected to whatever political goals exist 
um, because it seems like there's confusion in both of those areas right now. And it doesn't really seem like the IDF has a, has an objective really, or at least a very clear one. Right. So yeah. What is your read on that? Um, I'm just really curious about like what you think the IDF is going to think that they can actually achieve here. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, huge questions, right? I, I was talking to, um, actually debating about whether or not to say this, but, uh, uh, you know, I was talking to my parents who um, are, you know, and where I grew up <laughs> right now, um, kind of Israeli society. Uh, and as I was talking to my mom, a family friend uh, came into the house who, uh, you know, he, he knows me since I, um, since I was a baby, essentially. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, we're still friendly every every couple of years. Uh, you know, we happen to we happen to meet, and and I was on the phone, and he came on the phone, and he's also um, like uh, formerly a high ranking officer in the Israeli security systems. Um, and I was kind of testing my um, my theory with him about this uh, uh, this kind of strategic vacuum. Um, from which Israel seems to be operating right now, like being, um, like not having the legitimacy for uh, for full fledged genocide, like being incapable of enacting a full fledged genocide, uh, even if there's even if there's definitely popular support for that, um, while uh, well being on a genocidal track effectively, right, with uh, uh, with their actions, with their uh, inability to um, to come up with uh, uh, right with uh, with a feasible counterinsurgency plan um, and he said he that he, he agreed like they're they're operating from a place of uh, of, str- of strategic vacuum they think what they need to do right now is to um, is to use a lot of force. Uh, to just use a lot of force from a place of uh, uh, of raging anger and uh, and insult, you know, uh, that they they're acting from this place of uh, of humiliation. It's like a temper tantrum, right? Um, but still, right, we are seeing we're we're definitely seeing some um, some tactical strategic considerations. So um, so they have started a ground invasion. Uh, it's not. It's not a full-scale ground invasion, as you as you mentioned, but um, but the way they're moving here, I'm using the words of uh, an Israeli um, military analyst for Haaretz newspaper, which is like the Israeli version of the New York Times. His, his name is is Amos Harel, um, and he he says that uh, they're operating like they're moving into Gaza like a herd of elephants. Um, so we're seeing this uh, this herd of elephants moving fairly quickly, right? They can't stay in they can't stay and occupy space for too long because wherever they stay, they get bitten and attacked by uh, by an insurgents coming out of tunnels. Um, so they're moving fairly quickly, trying to uh, to surround uh, Gaza City, trying uh, trying to uh, displace one and a half million people from the north of the Gaza Strip down south. Um, and uh, and this herd of elephants, if, if we'll think about it, uh, right, as, as the tactical operation, it is 
right? In turn, opposed by um, what I'm what I would call uh, like a spider web. So, um, so, so the person who first said it, actually, I think, in in this campaign or uh, kind of prominently, was actually one of the um, Israeli uh, hostages who was released, an eighty-five-year-old woman called uh, Yocheved Lifshitz, and uh, she was sort of released uh, apparently as a kind of gesture, her and her daughter, um, or her and sorry, her and another woman. Uh, and uh, and she gave a, she gave an interview. There was uh, the, the Israeli state sees this as a complete uh, disaster for uh, for its uh, Hasbara or propaganda campaign. Um, and th- there was a press conference at, at the hospital, and she uh, she talked about how kindly she was treated, um, and and also shared uh, how they moved underground in a network of tunnels that was like. Uh, well, that was like a spider web, right? Um, and and as you mentioned, Israel seems to know very little about this about this network, uh, about these tunnels, and um, and they right they they completely change the conception of space. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we were talking about this kind of before um, we started recording uh, a bit, but you know, we both listened to uh, this podcast by a guy named John Spencer, who leads the Urban Warfare Institute at West Point, and um, you know, he had on this Israeli expert in tunnel warfare, um, and one of the things that became incredibly clear. Um, was that you know traditionally in a counterinsurgency operation, at least in the initial phases, especially when you're invading an area, the goal is to not get bogged down in urban areas. And so you know the U.S. did this when they invaded Iraq in 2003. Um, you know this is a pretty common tactic, but you sort of bypass and avoid cities, right? Is the terminology that they use. Um, but what that assumes is that the city has an outline, and it assumes that spatially you can see where the edges of the city are, right? But now that there's this kind of massive zone of indeterminacy below ground, right? Which just for context, for people that don't know, I mean, these tunnels, a lot of them are like 60 feet down, sometimes more. Um, and they're far enough down that GPS and things like ground penetrating radar and stuff cannot see them. Um, so regardless of what surveillance the Israelis might have been doing over the last you know, 15 or 20 years... Um, there's very little awareness of where the tunnel system lives. And kind of as we were talking about before, that fundamentally changes the way that you have to understand space, right? And it creates a situation in which you can't just bypass and avoid cities. We are starting to talk about something like Gaza, which is so densely populated, um, where tunnel systems are sort of, you know, have entrance points and exit points all over the place. Um, what does that mean for a large-scale military operation? Um, it seems like it would make something like that impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, what? And we're seeing the videos coming out of um, coming out of Gaza, published daily or or almost daily since the beginning of the ground invasion. Um, have you seen some of them? Right. I mean, so they're really uh, unbelievable, right? So you see fighters with GoPros coming out of a tunnel 
Um, this is, I guess, the most dramatic video. It shows a fighter um, approaching one tunnel, uh, one, one tank um, out of a column of tanks, I suppose. You can see three of them and kind of in one of the more uh, rural areas in, uh, in the northern Gaza, Gaza Strip. Um, approaching by foot, um, placing uh, an explosive device on the body of the tank. Uh, meanwhile, um, chanting um, a Quranic verse about um, uh, about uh, blocking uh, blocking the enemy's vision. So as a kind of almost as a kind of sorcery, um, and uh, and then retreating back to where he came out of. Uh, the um, the explosive device detonates, and then shooting the tank once again with um, with a Yassin one hundred five missile, which is a this is a, this is a kind of ammunition that was developed in the Gaza Strip, apparently, um, and you you can use an uh, an RPG to launch it, um, and then disappearing into the tunnel. Right, we've seen multiple videos like that. Um, so also in also in denser areas. Um, so so yeah, it, it gives the defender this um, this incredible advantage in being able to uh, to determine the point of contact, right? The point of uh, the point of engagement. So you know, mentioning John Spencer, right? He's this um, um, you know considered. Uh, uh, world-class expert in urban warfare, uh, former U.S. Army official, um, currently uh, right leading the the urban warfare program at West Point, um, and he wrote uh, right he wrote, he wrote the mini manual for the Urban Defender, which was uh, just you know a hundred thousand copies were translated into Ukraine and distributed to fighters on the front line over there. Uh, kind of teaching teaching civilians how to defend against a foreign invasion. Um, he he was also definitely recommending a lot of um, a lot of digging, right? Uh, use of tunnels, use of concrete. Um, uh, but he wasn't talking about this scale uh, in in recommending that. And he said um, that in the scale that he was that he was discussing, you would need at least ten uh, like offensive soldiers for every single urban defender. Um, and other right other military analysts talk about this, sort of the 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 advantage being on the side of the defender. Like John Robb and Brave New War mentions this. It goes all the way back to Clausewitz talking about right, talking about uh, defense as the strongest form of warfare. Um, so so numbers wise, we're seeing Hamas has an estimated 40,000 fighters. Um, Israel has about 150,000 active, uh, you know, conscripts, like um, active duty soldiers, and it was able to recruit 300,000 reserve soldiers. So, right, these are older people who are like leaving their their, their jobs within a population of around seven million. So, so this is a significant chunk of uh, of Israel's labor force. Um, that. Uh, that is now going in, into Gaza in the situation of numeric disadvantage, right? Because they can't have all of their forces. They can't. They can't have four hundred thousand soldiers try to try to invade Gaza and uh, and try to to clear out Hamas fighting in tunnels, 
where uh, right, a single fighter inside a tunnel can basically bring down an entire column coming through. So they're not going to enter. They're not like Israel isn't going to enter the tunnels, and they said so explicitly. Right, they they would deal with the tunnels afterwards. Um, and uh, right, another another Israeli disadvantage is um, is how do they deal with the hostages? Um, so. Uh, and, and this is a, a huge point of contention within Israeli society, with um, with growing uh, with growing dissent that isn't yet or isn't operating logistically yet. Like it's um, it's not that the centers are started using some of some of the tactics that um, that they were using against uh, the Netanyahu government over the last summer, for example, of uh, um, some some. Uh, small-scale s- uh, strikes, uh, some uh, definitely uh, significant blocking of um, of highways and other uh, and other roads, um, but they are protesting and they are um, they're definitely challenging uh, the government's legitimacy to act, and they're demanding uh, a prisoner exchange. They're demanding Israel does whatever it is in in its power to uh, to free the Israeli citizens who. Uh, who are held presumably on these tunnels? Um, yeah, yeah. So I think you know, uh, like I said, we're going to talk a lot more about things like the architecture of Gaza um, and things in a future conversation um, because that's a whole other discussion. Um, but I think right now, kind of to to sort of round us out for for this discussion. Um, you know, there's this question of Palestinian resistance outside of Hamas, right? Um, one of the deficiencies of the discourse so far, and this this includes amongst leftists, is this tendency to center Hamas, right? Um, both as a protagonist, but also kind of as the entity fighting the Israeli state. Um, and that does a lot to reinforce the notion that Hamas is actually in power in Gaza and that, you know, that's has some persistence to it. You know, as you mentioned earlier, that does a lot to reinforce counterinsurgency narratives that are, are sort of rising right now. But one of the difficulties in counterinsurgency campaigns um, is, you know, quote, how to separate the insurgents from the population, right? To use the David Petraeus uh, sort of lingo, but in Gaza, that has to be incredibly difficult. And so what is the relationship here between, say, you know, the insurrection in the streets that's happening um, and this armed uprising that is also concurrently happening, seemingly, um, in relation to this military intervention that's also happening? Because I think one of the things that um, is unique about this situation is that we are seeing a military invasion to end a resistance, which is largely popular and isn't largely made up of armed groups, but is largely made up of activists organizing, you know, sort of outside of that context. And so what does that all mean, right? Is that even a possibility? Could you even make that separation? And if not, then how do they avoid the possibility of, you know, if they if they are staking their international legitimacy on not committing overt genocide, how do they then avoid that, right? And I think this is the big question I know I've been asking is, I have a hard time seeing any military intervention not resulting in that, 
um, for as much as there's try they're they're trying to build this narrative of you know avoiding civilian casualties and things. Um, and I think you're seeing that around the fighting around the hospitals. We're recording this on November twelfth, um, and there's been a lot of fighting outside of major Palestinian hospitals over the last day or two. Um, so yeah, how how are they thinking about that? Are they thinking about that? Do they even care? Um, because I could imagine a faction of the Israeli military just not caring, right? And I've definitely heard that narrative being pushed by you know Zionists in America, for example, that they just don't care. And you heard a lot of the same thing after September 11th in the U.S., right? Uh, who cares how many Afghans die? They blew up the Twin Towers, blah, 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 right? But that's not really a realistic approach here. And so where does that leave them, right? Does that leave them anywhere? And if they're stuck in this vacuum, what does that mean as far as how they're going to approach any sort of forward movement, right? Like what is going to be their next step? It's it's sort of hard to imagine anything except the worst case in this situation, right? Given the circumstances. Right. Counter the, the counterinsurgency uh, approach leads to the, leads effectively to, to the same result, right? If you, if you cannot uh, separate the insurgents from the general population, which you apparently cannot, and you're not, and, UN by you I mean right uh, Israeli leadership and they're definitely not willing to and right and in their ongoing media campaign they're doing everything in their power to um, to enmesh the two right um, yeah so uh, so a lot here depends on right on the ability of the resistance to defend on the ground um, and the ability of the Resistance to take initiative elsewhere, uh, including uh, right the, the 48 borders and the West Bank, and there's definitely been um, armed groups and youth groups of uh, of protesters as well um, taking to the streets, clashing with Israeli forces. Um, there's been right uh, um, Hezbollah involvement um, and the North, so sort of stretching. Israel's capacity to to locate its forces on Gaza, um, uh, where it's focusing its genocidal campaign, um, we're seeing um, like accelerationist, very powerful accelerationist factions in uh, of Israeli settlers in the West Bank, um, trying to um, right to. Uh, to further displace, trying to clash and kill and murder um, Palestinians, and, and in some cases succeeding too, right? There's there's been like um, unprecedented in the past two decades uh, displacement of um, of Palestinian villagers and um, uh, in rural areas in the West Bank um, over the past month, and um, and it's also going to depend on. Uh, on the ability of the resistance internationally to put pressure on uh, on decision makers and power holders to withdraw their uh, their the military support that is keeping Israel's killing machine going, right? um, and Israelis are fully aware of that. They're not um, they're not an autonomous colonial entity. They're not an, an autonomous uh, imperial entity uh, with like sanctions and boycott. Um, will necessarily stop their operation. 
uh, and it would be enough for the U.S. to hint on that possibility uh, in order to put an end to the current uh, to the current military operation. So it's very dependent on Western powers for uh, for for ammunition, for military aid, financially and otherwise. What are they doing? Playing outlawed tunes on outlawed pipes. Give me freedom, or give me death I'm spitting insurrection to my very last breath This song's a death threat to the powers that be I refuse to back down, tell my people to free Yo, I'm heart attack serious, believe this, I'm furious Me, why y'all are knees, front of curious George, I use my words like swords Make no mistake, I decapitate lords I'm that rebel warrior left out the history books When I step on the scene, leave an enemy short Like shake, rattle, and roll to undermine your control This is a bullet of names straight at every pig on patrol Whoa, Deeper than the tides, hurricanes wage, wash away the status quo, burn sweet like sage. Call me Wolf Tony, incarnated devil, burn up the ghost of William Wallace and my man Nat Turner. I'm a Celt, Scottish, Irish, proud Doing everything I can to shout my message out loud Cause America's never done shit for my folks Tough workers to death, kill us with factory smoke From sweatshops to sharecrops, cannon fodder Hellfire might be hot, it couldn't be hotter Than the rage that I carry up inside of my chest I'll fight to the death, long as I've got a breath left When I step out of the shadows, I'll spit illumination Designed to undermine the foundations of this nation Wrote this for everyone who's had their history stolen Languages erased, our father's back broken by wealthy vampires who made us serfs and slaves To build their vampires and the power we pray My people black, white, brown All hear the same sound Whip, snap from your back But we gon' turn it around Trouble with Cause my people are my people, all colors and shapes Have seen far too many years of genocide and rape We've been conquered, beat down, whipped and chained And made slaves through the pain with locks in our brains on brain justice, all my people poor and oppressed Stuck between the power grab with the right and the left Taken to the grassroots in the street with my folks It's the fire, blow smoke to make my enemies choke The government's the terrorist, this shit ain't a joke Yo, I'd hang everyone in Congress if I had enough rope Politicians on a mission, trick us into submission I vote with my fist because they're much more efficient Poor people got nothing to gain from your games Doesn't matter how you vote, cause the result's the same Politicians get money and we get fucked I say we start a revolution, blow this motherfucker up All right, we are back for part two of our discussion with Adi Kalai about the conflict in uh, Gaza. Um, So as we're recording, this is on the 22nd now, um, and we might be putting these out as part of the same very long episode, but uh, we've recorded on different days. So 
Uh, we're on the 22nd now. And this morning, there was sort of the announcement of the negotiations around hostage release. Um, I forget the exact uh, ratio, but there's a 150 or so Palestinians being released from prison, something like 50 hostages being released from Gaza. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that before we sort of get into a conversation, which today uh, we're going to focus a lot on um, questions of, of how the occupation became the way it was, um, what that meant, and and how that has sort of shaped Palestinian resistance, both you know before, during, and after the Second Intifada. Um, so yeah, why don't we just start with with what's going on right now? So um, if you could get into sort of what's happening and what are the broader implications here? Like what are, what is Hamas trying to sort of achieve through this? Um, what is the IDF trying to achieve through this? And I think importantly in relation to our, our prior conversation, what about everybody else, <laughs> right? There are hostages not kept by Hamas. There are other interests here that aren't held by Hamas, right? Um, what about everyone else? So what what's going on in this situation? Right. Yeah. So as we've discussed last time, everything still changes so rapidly. Right. So um, so we're, we're seeing history unfold in front of us. And it is just over the past few hours. Right. That uh, terms of um, of a truce agreement have been released. And, um, and these terms, I can quickly go through them if that would be helpful. Uh, the terms are that uh, there's be, there's uh, like a four-day ceasefire by both parties and a cessation of all military actions by uh, by the occupation army in all areas of the Gaza Strip, right, for these four days. Um, so uh, so the idea of committed not to attack or arrest anyone in, air, in any areas of the Gaza Strip. Um, they committed to ensure the free movement of people from north to south along... Um, Salah Dean Street, and uh, they committed to stop air traffic in the south throughout the entire period. So this means drones as well, um, and in the north uh, for six hours a day. Uh, and there's, of course, the um, the terms of the of the prisoner exchange, which is uh, the release of fifty women and children captives uh, in exchange for the release of one hundred and fifty uh, Palestinian women and children imprisoned in Israeli prisons. And then there's also uh, like allowed entry of hundreds of trucks with humanitarian relief, medical and fuel aid to all areas of the Gaza Strip, including the north, uh, and uh, stopping the advance of uh, Israeli occupation military vehicles into the Gaza Strip. Um, so, uh, so this has already kind of immediately demonstrated the degree of, uh, of leverage that holding hostage, hostages can have, right, on the Israeli occupation, like more than any kind of statement from Biden or some UN official or Macron or whoever, right? Um, it's um, uh, it's the claiming of the hostages that was um, that once again uh, kind of forced Israel to um, uh, to to back down at least for now. And we'll see how this will unfold. Um, there are some other stipulations that uh, that I saw in Israeli media about this, saying that um, 
there that there's a possibility for um, continued kind of 10 hostages for 30 more prisoners, like in the following days after the four days. And it's very likely that this will continue past the four days. I don't think this by any measure will be um, right, a permanent ceasefire. Um, but it's definitely a, like a de-escalation of the, of the fighting until now. Um, and it's very significant. And um, it is part of this, um, part of the, um, the history of Palestinian resistance being able to uh, get concessions by taking Israelis and Israeli soldiers hostage. Uh, and I can go over this history uh, quickly. It's, um, right, it's, it, it's been going on for decades. Uh, the first deal that broke a kind of status quo of one-to-one prisoner for prisoner was, uh, according to Israeli negotiator Ariel Merari, uh, a 1978 agreement with the PFLP general command, right? So we mentioned the PFLP last time as a um, uh, popular front for the liberation of Palestine, the revolutionary socialist organization. The, the PFLP general command, the PFLP GC, was a splinter organization. Um, was was mostly based in Syria. I think still is mostly based in Syria. Uh, and um, it, in 1978, it was able to um, broker a deal to exchange 76 Palestinian political prisoners for one Israeli soldier. So, um, right, they were able to they were able to um, to identify the fact that Israel was willing to give more than one for one, and were able to to kind of work on that and cook up the pressure in order to force Israel to release like 76 times more people, right? And since then, the resistance was able to raise the floor of Israeli negotiations with every deal, pretty much. Um, the Jibril Agreement was uh, a particularly contentious one and kind of in the Israeli national memory, where, again, the PFLPGC was able, in exchange for uh, three Israeli soldiers captured during the first Lebanon war, to bargain for the release of 1,151, so over 1,000 polit- uh, Palestinian political prisoners for three soldiers. Um, and these 1,151 included uh, also the Palestine Solidarity militant um, Kozo Okamoto who, of the Japanese Red Army. So that's just an interesting facet there. Um, and so this kind of culminated with, uh, the, with Gilad Shalit, in 2006. Um, so this was uh, under Ulmert's administration. Gilad Shalit was, um, uh, was a, a tank operator. He was in a tank with two other soldiers uh, that was uh, ambushed in a surprise attack, again, uh, by militants appearing from, uh, from a tunnel behind enemy lines, behind the guarded positions, um, the two other soldiers were killed. He was captured. And, um, in an Israeli, uh, uh I'm sorry, in a, in an Al Jazeera documentary that I, uh, I watched recently, actually, there was an interview with, uh, with Ehud Olmert, who was prime minister at the time. And he sort of expressed kind of disrespect for Shalit himself for not, uh, fighting back like, uh, like the other two soldiers who were killed, kind of basically revealing that Israeli leaders prefer soldiers dead rather than captured. And, um, and we know this, but the important factor is that the captives 
like the the fact of being captured um, works on like broader Israeli society in a really deep way. So it was Shalit's family, Gilad Shalit's family, specifically his dad, uh, famously his dad, Noam Shalit in the forefront, um, who, who became kind of this image of, uh, of the father rescuing his son. And he was able to galvanize a social movement around him uh, to pressure for, uh, for Gilad Shalit's release through a kind of no matter the cost prisoner exchange. And the social movement uh, was picked up and endorsed by Ulmert's rivals across Zionist political lines, so from from the right wing to liberal Zionists. And Ulmert was still going to broker a deal, right, uh, of about 350 Palestinian prisoners for Shalit. But according to him in in this uh, Al Jazeera interview, uh, his rival and former prime minister uh, Ehud Barak visited Shalit's family a night before the deal would be signed, signaling to Hamas uh, that Israel would bend further yet. Um, so th- this was, again, according to Olmert. Uh, but when, At- when Netanyahu took power, right, again, when he got back into power in 2009 with Barak as Minister of Defense, it was with a promise uh, to Netanyahu's base, right, to bring Gilad Shalit back home. And in 2011, with the, um, the outbreak also of... Uh, a kind of Israeli version of the Occupy movement. Uh, it was called kind of the J14 struggle or the tent struggle. Um, so uh, un- under this and Netanyahu trying to um, perhaps to, to shift the public attention away from the tent struggle, which was an anti-capitalist struggle about uh, like rising costs of living. Um, so he eventually kind of brokered this amazing, this unbelievable deal Um exchanging over 1,000 Palestinian political prisoners, 1,027 to be precise, for one. So 1,027 for one, including a head of Hamas in Gaza, right? Yahya Sinwar. Um, And this agreement is largely seen since then uh, by both sides as a huge failure for Israel in in the negotiations and, and an amazing victory for the resistance. Uh, so up until now, right, every deal has been has, has set a new floor. Almost every deal has set a new floor uh, in Israel's hostage negotiations with the resistance. And the question going forward is whether the Shalit deal uh, and, and October 7th, which is uh, supposedly in the Israeli imag- imagination uh, crafted by Sinwar, right, who was released in the Shalit deal, whether this created enough of a rift in Israel's sense of self that uh, its approach will now change and that Israel will, will be able to withstand the pressure to concede. But what the truce agreement dem- demonstrates is that this, is, this doesn't seem to be the case, right? And we're likely to see more of the same, meaning that uh, the, true, the true gains from this, specific, uh, from this specific leverage that the resistance holds now um, will materialize. The true gains will materialize as Israel's shaky political terrain will further crumble internally under the Netanyahu administration that has already been subject to um, uh, to pretty much unprecedented protests. Uh, and um, so we'll see if, um, if the families of uh, the hostages will keep organizing after this exchange. And they have been building up power, 
building, right? Uh, they they held um, a ten thousand plus strong march to Jerusalem uh, the week before. So it it's likely uh, that that we've seen like the Israeli public cooking up the pressure for on the administration to broker a deal, even as um, even as right Israeli politicians have shown no desire to free them, to free the hostages. Um, so we'll see, right, we'll, we'll see how this pans out. Like clearly um, some soldiers will be kept uh, and right, uh, there, no soldiers are being released in, uh, in, this, current, uh, in this current deal. Uh, and the negotiations might continue for years, you know, over the soldiers, over the, over the bodies of, the, of uh, whoever soldiers have possibly uh, died in, under the heavy Israeli bombardments. Um, and we'll see whether the opposition parties, headed by the right, still genocidal uh, Zionist uh, centrists like uh, Yair Lapid, um, who are, are claiming to be the rescuers of the hostages, we'll see whether they possibly um, take power and become also forced to... Um, to to concede even further, um, and the story of the hostages, you know, it's um, just kind of mediatically. I've been thinking about uh, a little bit about David Graeber's observation. You know, he had, he had this kind of quintessentially simple yet profound anthropological observation on on Palestinian culture, where he said that <clears throat> um, that the entire point of life and Palestinian culture is hospitality, is to be generous to, to strangers. And that one of the tragic ironies is that Israel is the worst possible guest, right? Um, and it's true, you know, like uh, anyone who's experienced Palestinian hospitality will tell you that. Like uh, in many ways, the meaning, the core of social life in Palestine is to be generous to guests and strangers. And, and we're seeing it and, and what we know about the treatment of the hostages um, and how they recount their experiences and the rare and the very rare occasions that they're actually allowed to speak, as was the case with uh, Yocheved Lichitz, right, who, um, who, who tried to tell them how, who, who, right, tried to tell uh, global media, even as journalists were trying to talk over her, that she was treated very, like very kindly and that, yes, we need to, um, to, to rescue and save the rest of the, the other hostages, hostages who were held with her. Um, and also with, with uh, Gilad Shalit, um, he has never spoken in detail, right? Uh, apparently not even to his family about his five-year experience in captivity. Um, but, uh, but Hamas released footage of him basically hanging out with his captures. Um, his, his captures are uh, Hamas's a shadow unit, they're called, um, like chatting, drinking a ton of tea, you know, this kind of super sweet Palestinian tea, uh, receiving letters from his family, doing a barbecue outside, like outdoors and so on. So um, now I'm sure it wasn't a pleasant situation for him. And it's probably way worse for uh, for the captives currently uh, held probably in the tunnels, right? Um, but uh, But still, right? It's, uh, it shows, like, compare this with the experience of Palestinian prisoners, right? Who, right, since October 7th, have been experiencing retributive torture 
beatings, being put in stress postures, uh, sleep deprivation by um, their guards blasting Israel's national anthem in the cell. And this is this is stuff that, by the way, um, this is stuff that I'm getting from Israeli media, uh, from um, right the the minister of of prisons, Ben Gvir, and, and, and the police, uh, the minister of the interior, who who is proud of this, who says, okay, uh, who like show, shows this to his base as a, as, a, as a point of pride, like we're torturing, we're humiliating them, this is good, and um, and in, meanwhile, in, in international media, we see this absolutely racist, like completely racist double standard, like no word about the seventy five hundred Palestinian political prisoners held without fair trial, many of Many of whom don't even know what the justifications are for capturing them under administrative detention. Not to mention hundreds more, including um, Ahed Tamimi, right, the youth activist who was abducted from her bed, right, under flimsy accusations of incitement. Well, thank you for running that down. I know we were kind of before we were recording, um, sort of talking about wanting to draw some of the through lines, right, uh, from the past and. Um, I know we wanted to take a lot of the conversation back today to the second intifada. So a lot of what the conversation that I've been sort of picking up, and this is in the, um, you know, sort of military press or kind of think tank world and so on, um, has had to do with this narrative of a strategically deficient resistance magically coming up with this um, combination of special factors that all of a sudden short circuited something in Israeli security. Right. And there's this element to it in which it almost is talked about as if it came out of nowhere, um, that there was almost a surprising element uh, to the fact that to the fact of its occurrence, even right. And any of us that paid attention to this conflict for any period of time know that that's not true. And so maybe take us back a little bit to the second intifada. Um, I know when I was coming up in political organizing work, that was still a very present memory. Um, it hadn't happened that long before that. And, you know, people were still very actively talking about it. I mean, chants in the streets and, and everything. Um, but I, I think that that memory isn't as present today necessarily. And so maybe run through, um, you know, how did we get to a situation in which um, something like what happened in early October occurred, right? Like, why did it happen the way that it did? Because um, I think that this is a, one of the questions that isn't really being discussed in depth a lot, um, is how the history of this conflict shaped what happened on that day and has been shaping what's been happening since then. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe run us through that and uh, run us through that history. Yeah. So, um, so we'll start with right, the first intifada in 1987, uh, which was largely a popular revolt uh, where we see, or we did see the, um, uh, like uh, all of the tool, the tools of a popular insurrection, like uh, like massive um, marches, um, strikes, uh, 
tax refusal, um, riots, um, where uh, coordination between uh, be- between uh, spontaneously formed uh, mutual aid networks, uh, essentially, uh, and uh, uh, like a massive uprising that was essentially um, co-opted by uh, by PLO officials abroad. Uh, eventually, right? There was this kind of counterinsurgency decision to um, to accept the PLO as um, a legitimate representative of uh, the Palestinian people, bring them back, uh, like allow uh, refugees to return as uh, like, right, a, a limited amount of like PLO officials to return, um, create this kind of... Uh, mirage of victory while bringing the PLO into the state apparatus that would then, through the Oslo Accords, turn into uh, the Palestinian Authority. The second Intifada broke, I mean, there was right an inciting incident of uh, Ariel Sharon uh, visiting um, Al-Aqsa Mosque, right? But but it was essentially... um, a continuation of the first Intifada and the the deep disappointment with um, the failure of the Oslo Accord, um, and and then through the process of the Second Intifada, we've seen uh, definitely a, uh, like a bloody militarization of the um, of the Palestinian popular struggle, and that's when uh, when Hamas really took central central stage. Like they, of course, they were they they were definitely part of the uh, of the popular psyche. But that's when they started to um, they started to effectively take over uh, as the real representatives of Palestinian resistance, as those who um, will not give up on the right of return, who will not give up on um, on historic Palestine, right on uh, on the possibility for decolonization. Um, so that's really that's really important to think about. That's it's when um, we've really started seeing the kind of um, sophisticated guerrilla tactics that have um, enabled them to carry out this this unprecedented, unbelievable operation on October seventh. Um, so I wonder if we should talk a little bit more about. Um, I mean, you were talking a little bit about the right, the ability to um, invert or uh, right to like bring yeah. down Israeli panopticism. Yeah, I think you know one of the one of the elements of Palestinian res- resistance, but I also see this developing in places like Myanmar. Um, is this? just seemingly endless capacity for her tactical innovation. Um, this ability to, to pull tactics out of nothing, right. To, to sort of build with scraps and develop entire logistic chains out of that. Um, it's a really astonishing sort of, of development, right. And watching sort of happen over time, and so, yeah, I, I think 
you know, one of the things that that emerges a lot in surveillance discourse is this notion of um, the Israeli state as this kind of impenetrable wall of surveillance, right? Um, in which there's drones flying all the time and there's cameras everywhere and there's, you know, like this constant form of sort of military mobilization and, and so on. Um, and that all really broke down um, thoroughly. And so, you know, maybe we should talk about this, this concept of, of how this panopticism sort of developed, right? So like, why was it that the Israelis took this approach of sort of staying back and watching, or that's at least how it's interpreted? Um, and what are the methods, like how has that changed the methods of Palestinian resistance and, and sort of what is going on here in the process of short-circuiting um, that, that apparatus? Right. Yeah. Um, so we talked about this a little bit last time, kind of uh, Israel kind of um, through the 2000s, reverting back to uh, to RMA, Revolution Military Affairs, kind of um, a military doctrine instead of, uh, of the hitherto very effective counterinsurgency approach um, that, uh, that they uh, su- like successfully experimented with in the 90s with the, with the Oslo Accords. Uh, and there's something, right, very, um, very seductive for occupiers, very seductive for uh, for prison guards about panopticism. But I think what I'm starting to realize with October 7th is that um, there's a trap in that. Like, if we think about, right, b- the basic structure of the panopticon, uh, right, there's a you you can help me with this. There's um, there's a there would there could be one prison guard in, in the center of the structure, um, who is not visible from uh, f- from the cells like right surrounding him in a kind of uh, uh, circular structure, and the situation where um, prisoners would um, internalize the idea that they're being surveilled and self police mm-hmm. whether they're being surveilled yeah, or yeah. not. Yeah. Right. Well, and and the um, elements of that that I think are really interesting. And- just to jump in really quick, um, I think a lot of people focus on the visibility element of panopticism, right? Um, that it's about seeing, but it, it's really not. It's not about seeing at all. It's in fact about the prisoners in the case of the original prison sign being able to see the idea that you might be able to see them, right? So they can't see you, so they can't see if you're seeing them, right? Um, but also it's not about your ability to see outside, to see the prisoners, that the whole point is that it's this kind of indetermination of what's visible that creates the deterrence effect, right? Um, and you see this in, in, you know, a place like New York City operating really clearly where, you know, if you ever see like NYPD Central, um, which there's tons of pictures of this, but there's walls of screens, And they have feeds to all these surveillance cameras. And you know that there's no possible way that they could monitor even a small fraction of those. But it kind of doesn't matter because the point isn't that they're going to see something and respond. The point is is that you see the camera, right? Hence why in, you know, cities like where I live, like in a lot of Rust Belt cities, the cameras just have big blue lights on them. So everyone knows that they're there, right? Um, But yeah, sorry. Sorry to jump in. Go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And 
and the 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 panoptic power of the uh, of the cameras collapses once right once the uh, once the prisoners or or the civilians or whoever right uh, is under that panoptic power once they understand um that their adversaries might not have the capacity to act upon the surveillance that they might have a capacity to uh, to gather right the intelligence that they have, might have capacity to gather and so um october 7 demonstrated this uh, collapse of panoptic power um but what i was trying to get to with uh um sort of simply going back to the like the very basic um basic ar- architectural structure is uh, imagine that um behind each and every cell there is a a secret tunnel a secret entrance to a tunnel that leads to an intricate network of other tunnels that enables the prisoners to um to give each other mutual aid to plot um to to come up with um an intricate plan for for an insurrection or or a prison revolt right um while creating the mirage uh that they're simply uh prisoners uh compliant in their cells creating this false sense of security right and and in this sense right the 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 prison analogy right thinking again about uh um about kind of the 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 seduction of panopticism for for the occupier because it allows right it allows the prison guard to be lazy supposedly it allows the prison guard to say okay i can just put one guard there to guard you know 3000 prisoners and hope that everything will uh, and think that everything will work out uh, just fine but uh but actually those prisoners are organizing um and in gaza specifically as an open air prison right um i mean the uh the thinking about gaza as a as a as a prison is important not only um not only politically but also also militarily the way that the prison is controlled right because when you think about it especially in like um in like lower security prisons prisoners seemingly control most of the prison right they have uh they have uh, ac- like uh, access to the yard they um um they run some of their own services uh right but there are there are guards who sit on maybe 2% of the uh of the prison territory if we're only thinking of, uh, territorially right um who control who come who, who comes in and out which uh, resources come in and out and so on and so forth um who um who try as much as possible to control the prison population but they never manage to control the prison population fully uh and in gaza we've seen this on a mass scale and so that's kind of the i suppose the broader picture um and we can go we can go more deeply into the kind of this yeah. specific yeah yeah i definitely want to get into this right so you know one of the reasons i drifted over into uh having a profound interest in things like information security um is exactly this kind of dynamic right um that one of the things that you learn when you're starting to kind of dive into that world is that really what happens is very normal it's just about chaining really normal looking things together and actually if you do something that looks special and magical and mysterious you get caught 
And it, remi- it, you know, I was reminded of this by this analogy of, you know, the panoptic prison with the tunnels in the back of every cell, right? That there was this fascinating element to what happened in which there was this incredibly sophisticated facade that was constructed, but it seemingly was constructed without the knowledge of the builders fully about what they were doing or why they were doing it. You know, there was this, um, this article in the New York times where they kind of walked through one of the tunnels and there's phone lines running through there, you know, and they were talking about how a lot of the attack was planned on literal like copper phone lines. And the reason that that worked is that the Israeli state, and this is kind of one of the the traps of panopticism for the occupier, right? Um, Panopticism is not premised on you actually having visibility, but it tends to have this, this way of convincing you that you do have visibility, right? Convincing you that you can see everything. You know, this is something that the NSA talked a lot about uh, in the early 2000s around the, the Patriot Act, right? They were actually saying getting a ton more data doesn't actually help because they can't see already anything. And so if the assumption is, is that more data makes more visibility, like creates more visibility, that's a false assumption, right? But it is one that seems to have operated here. And it's definitely one that operated with the US and Iraq, right? It's definitely one that operates with police departments all over the country here. Um, you see this in a place like London, where the you know answer all the time to a security concern is just add more cameras, right? And so there's this element in which panopticism almost creates a trap of expectation, that it sort of assumes a visibility of normality. And so if you can sort of mimic normality, you can create sort of realms of invisibility, right? Like the other place where this comes up in things I've been studying recently um, was actually the Soviet Union uh, with, you know, there's this idea in the US that everything in the Soviet Union was horribly repressive. But really what was happening was the building of a structure of expectation. And so if you were, you know, um, in the Communist Youth League and you went to the meeting and you raised your hand for all the votes and everything, it didn't actually matter whether you were paying attention, right? You could just be reading. You could just be doing anything else. And as long as you performed your duty, when you went home, people weren't watching you anymore, right? Because you just did the good thing. There seems to be this element here in which the expectations of normality combined with the sort of assumptions of visibility created very specific conditions here um, that are really fascinating to me. And I'm kind of wondering sort of how you're viewing this, right? Like how you're seeing what approaches were taken and why um, in relation to, to sort of short circuiting this expectation of visibility. We talked about this last time too, right? Um, the sort of, um, the creation of the, uh, the mirage that, uh, Hamas was mostly interested in, um, right, in, in economic development, um, that, uh, they were mostly just, uh, bargaining for, um, for, uh, for a little bit more, um, permits for, for workers to enter, um, Possibly signaling this uh, within 
interpersonal conversations, right? According to some um, to some reports uh, from uh, from Israeli media, possibly um, um, claiming this as a way to short circuit um, Israel's um, supposedly vaunted uh, network of informants in Gaza, uh, which through this, right, appears to, to have completely collapsed, right? Uh, and then kind of tactically, um, even technologically, as you described, um, simply using using landline phones uh, within the tunnels. Um, I suppose those are, those are kind of the immediate examples that come to mind. Yeah, I think, you know, so... Okay. Uh, yeah, no, go ahead. Do you have go anything ahead. else as well? I was I was just no, going to jump in and you know say that that one of the the elements of what happened that I've I've been finding really interesting um, is this technique you know it's various people have called it like you know going technologically high and low right um, so using something like a drone to go take out a camera while also using a landline to communicate when to do that right. Um, what you're doing is you're skirting that middle line of expected use, right? And by doing that, which, you know, and this is a whole conversation if we want to get into it, but, you know, it really does involve having a very intimate understanding of what your adversary is capable of um, and really knowing in and out what their expectations are, what their norms are, right? Like on a level, which I think, you know, when we think about most like radicals in the West, I mean, I can't imagine most radicals in the West developing a level of understanding of their local police department. That's that nuanced. Right. Um, we should be right. We absolutely all should be doing that. Uh, but it, it feels like it's almost impossible to imagine people doing that. So yeah. Right. It's kind of, it, um, I mean, it goes back to your point about, Palestinian resistance not being strategically deficient, right? Um, in many ways, being—I mean, absolutely—being familiar with with their occupiers more than the other way around, right? Um, and we can see this in also in the the response to to the ground invasion, which from now it just simply seems like uh, you know was basically planned as a trap like knowing that israel will uh will react with uh with a lot of firepower uh and then try to enter right um and luring it into what in what in the grand scheme of things looks like um uh like a complex ambush you know like this term from right from uh, insurgency warfare um so we're seeing this on on the broad scale, right? The resistance isn't trying to hold space um, while the IDF advances, destroying as much as possible, destroying everything that stands ahead of it, right? As as we mentioned, like a, as a as a herd of elephants, uh, lots of heavy machinery, lots of tanks, um, bulldozers, uh, armed personnel carriers, with um, also with use of. Uh, of uh, of of new gadgets, we'll call it that, and maybe I can get into that a little bit more la- later. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, basically, it, it uses uh, the people of Gaza as uh, as a laboratory to test new weapon systems. It's, it has been doing this for the past couple of decades. And if you follow Israeli arms experts, they t- they typically peak after large scale military operations. Like it go like the um, it definitely goes hand in hand, right? If you uh, if you look at the diagrams, uh, you can visualize it very clearly. Um, like Israel's arms industry is bound to um, to its military operations, and it's, and it's possible that that it has been uh, that it had been in the past before October seven. Also, a certain um, a way for Israelis to um, to give a bump to uh, for Israel to give a bump to its, to its GDP. Um, and, and in this case too, we're seeing kind of, um, uh, kind of new gadgets, new defense systems to, to protect, uh, tanks and APCs, uh, this kind of, uh, trophy system. And on the other hand, we're seeing, um, right, the resistance adapting, producing their own kind of double-headed munitions that are able to both, uh, disable the reactive armor and penetrate the tank. Um, and so, and so as it's right, as the Israeli military is moving like a, like a herd of elephants, eventually it stops and becomes static and gets hit by fighters coming out of tunnels or out of the rubble. So this is another, Another element that that we're seeing now, to a degree that we haven't seen in Gaza beforehand, uh, because there has been so much firepower. Like, um, like right, Israel shows itself as um, uh, right as as a world champion in murdering children. I just before before getting on this interview, I listened to uh, an interview with. Uh, with the head of uh, OCHA, this uh, UN agency, on CNN, saying, uh, "Here's a person who, like, uh, who saw the genocide in Cambodia firsthand, saying he hasn't seen anything like like this. This is the worst massacre of children he has ever seen. Uh, right? So the death toll is currently at around fifteen thousand um, people in Gaza, uh, roughly half of them children, and." Um, but still, no military gains to show. So, is right. So, um, so meanwhile, we're seeing Hamas fighters coming out of the rubble, like uh, using the rubble strategically, um, carrying out um, complex ambushes, ambushes, carrying out um, complex ambushes with coordination with uh, other insurgent groups like uh, like the PIJ. Um, so that's um, something we've seen over the past days, and still, and this I I've never seen before. I kind of this kind of um, unprecedented stream of documentation to prove that they're doing this, to prove that they are like effectively um, defending Gaza from um, from this local this local yeah. like nuclear yeah. superpower. Um, well, and it seems like you know you were talking about rubble. You know, and it's one of these things that, you know, outside of military thought, I don't think there's a lot of awareness of just how relevant that is in something like urban conflict, right? So, 
you know, the classic example is Stalingrad, where, you know, the Nazis showed up and shelled the city into the ground before they tried to invade it. And in the process, killed thousands of people, but also created this situation in which every single pile of rubble also became a machine gun position or a sniper nest or something like that. And you couldn't see people anymore that they were now hidden. They were defended behind walls of broken, you know, broken walls, essentially, right? Um, you can't drive down the streets. You know, so you create this problem. In counterinsurgency warfare, this becomes even more profound in a lot of ways in that the situation that you're trying to stabilize, right, is the one that you're actively trying to occupy full time. And so you end up with this scenario in which, you know, the U.S. ran into this in, in Iraq, uh, for example, um, to be able to kind of contain the crisis of the insurgency and be able to kind of pull conditions back into some semblance of control. Um, the U.S. opted instead of just destroying everything, they opted for techniques like mass arrests and things like that, right? They would just roll into an area and arrest every single male over 15 or something like that. And it would take months to process people through the jail system that the U S had built. Right. What that did was it stabilized conditions in the short term. It also created ISIS, you know, that it created the situation in which there were, there was a lot of resentment concentrated in one area with a lot of people with a lot of motivation, many of which are military training. Um, and so, you know, you contrast that with, say, the way the British um, engaged in counterinsurgency, where, you know, they're isolating civilians by moving all the civilians, right? As opposed to trying to push the, the fighters out, they're trying to move the civilians with them. But in all of these situations, what ends up happening is this fractured social context, right? And often fractured infrastructure, too, which then makes occupying the space more difficult. Um, it doesn't seem like there's much of a way that the IDF is trying to avoid that. It seems like they're walking right into that kind of a situation. And it's sort of, it leads to the question of, is the response pull back and shell Gaza into the ground? Or is the response to pull back and not do that? Um, cause it seems like, as you mentioned, it seems like the IDF has walked itself into a sort of, you know, strategic trap where there's not really a great option. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you're talking about um, American brutality in Iraq, um, putting out the conditions for the creation of ISIS. I mean, that's, uh, that's important to think about, you know, like uh, counterinsurgency cautions against massacres of civilians, right? Very heavily. Like, and I think, and Petraeus tried to tried to stress this um, uh, right right at the beginning of this uh, of this operation in Gaza, like don't repeat our mistakes in Iraq. Like he's not saying this because he cares about the, about the Palestinian people. He's saying this because this is his experience as um, uh, right as military commander in Afghanistan and Iraq. This is his experience as um, like. Um, as one of the foremost military scholars of counterinsurgency, uh, what genocide does, and in this case, by the way, we can uh, we can clearly call this genocide. Um, if folks want to hear more about that, I recommend listening to uh, 
actually Israeli historian um, uh, Raz, uh, Raz Siegel and um, his case for uh, for why this is a right a textbook uh, a textbook example of genocide. Um, even just looking at the numbers, right? The Bosnian genocide was um, um, had. Uh, 8,400 casualties, right? 8,400 uh, told about 8,400. And here we're seeing almost double that, um, right? Uh, so I, I, I spoke about those uh, those numbers a little bit. But uh, compared to the Sabra and Shatila massacre, right? Early 80s uh, in Lebanon. Um, the Sabra and Shatila massacre, uh, I believe, had about 2,000 to 3,000 people killed. Right, massacred, um, and it was succeeded by the formation of Hezbollah, um, that is now raining rockets uh, in solidarity with Gaza from the north, from Lebanon. Right, so, um, so, so genocide and massacres create this uh, this degree of escalation and unpredictability uh, that the military might not be prepared for in the long run. Right. Yeah, well, and I, th- I think it emphasizes something really important about the Palestinian resistance. And maybe this is a point we can, we can sort of close on, wrap our conversation up with. But you know, one of the things I find, you know, and I mentioned this before, astonishing about Palestinian resistance specifically is its adaptability, right? It's sort of the willingness of people to simultaneously be patient but also not have patience shut down militancy, right? Like militancy and patience are not necessarily adverse terms in that context. And one of the things I've noticed about things like spending many years digging tunnels, right? Or building your own arms production apparatus, that stuff takes a lot of time and a lot of resources. And you're doing that in a situation where you're not necessarily sure what the strategic situation you're going to use any of that in is. And that creates a sort of approach, which is largely grounded in preparation and adaptation and not rigid military structures and rigid plans. Right. Um, I think that tells us a lot about sort of, you know, uh, that tells us a lot about sort of, I think the deficiencies of, a lot of the ways that people organize domestically in the U.S., right, where there's this kind of tendency towards size and mass and singularity and this desire to have, you know, single demands with groups of people, you know, so on, so on, so on. So maybe speak about a little bit about the way that that adaptability has allowed the resistance to not just survive, but I mean, in this case, as you're, as you're saying, successfully defend Gaza to, to a certain degree. Right. Yeah. And uh, another thing that that we're seeing, I, I think this some of this adaptability has to do um, with what becomes a little bit clearer that uh, maybe this ties us back with uh, right with the prison analogy is that um, Hamas hasn't really become uh, a state structure in Gaza, uh, right? In the very simple sense and. Um, and you can, you know, correct me about the definition of a state of, of the state if you want. But you know, following Weber, uh, that the state is the monopoly over the legitimate use of force. Hamas has not monopolized force in Gaza, 
the use of the use of force, the use of violence in Gaza. Um, right? It uh, uh, it has definitely um, cracked down on political opposition. It has um, ousted effectively Fatah, right? Um, that controls the the PLO when uh, when Fatah attempted a coup after the um, the elections in 2006, which uh, which Hamas won, right? But uh, uh, but was able like lost control in the West Bank, but was able to take control in uh, in the Gaza Strip, and and in many ways, kind of um, mimicking. Um, Prisoner societies inside Palestinian prisoner societies inside Israeli prisons, uh, in the sense that um, when you get to a prison as a Palestinian prisoner, uh, you're right. You're introduced to your inmates. Um, this this guy is uh, is PIJ. This uh, this is Hamas. This is uh, right, Fatah's um, armed wing. This is um, PFLP, and um, and and you choose some organization to um, to participate with, and they kind of they coexist within uh, within the prison structure, and they have, by the way, um, very uh, very directly democratic uh, systems of organization. Uh, and this has this has kind of replicated itself in Gaza and the 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 proliferation of uh, various armed groups, right? So yeah, Hamas um, ousted Fatah. Uh, ousted cracked down heavily on ISIS, by the way, as well. Uh, this is something that people don't like to talk about, or I suppose uh, Western media doesn't like to talk about because it insists on this uh, false analogy between um, Hamas and ISIS. But you can read about it in, in the Electronic Intifada. And by the way, um, I really recommend following their coverage on this. They're doing absolutely amazing work uh, in the Electronic Intifada. But um, electronicintifada.net. Uh, but yeah, I, I, and I think this um, th- this decision to sort of uh, right to to be an uh, an armed group that uh, that definitely has some civil and, and political structures, but not to comp- right not to not to monopolize force um, to to keep it, uh, existing as part as part of um, um, of. Well, a resistance uh, ecosystem. It's this. It's this ability of uh, of the ecosystem to adapt to the the rigid, hierarchical, stupid, incompetent military structure that attacks it. And by the way, I'm saying incom- that the Israeli military is incompetent as an Israeli, right? Or as technically an Israeli who grew up in a military family, like who has a, a military family. Right, um, close family members who are still who are still career soldiers. Like we've known all along, we know that the army is a dumb, frustrating, uh, like, like terrible, idiotic organization that uh, that sells itself to the world um, as some as some kind of um, as some kind of you know cutting edge, brilliant organization of uh, of startup um, fanatics. So I don't know <laughs> like exactly how to put it, but. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, yeah. I think, well, it, it tells us a lot <laughs> about the role of resistance in everyday life there, right? That resistance seems to be organized along the lines of life, 
right? That people sort of exist in a lot of different realms, right? A lot of different communities within Palestine. Um, but also if you really look at the skills that people are bringing to the resistance, right? Um, people like machinists, right? They're, it's those, those weapons don't make themselves, you know, um, woodworkers, right? People who know how to dig tunnels, right? Like there's a long history of tunnel digging in Palestine. Um, and it, it really, it demonstrates to me something um, really crucial, not just about resistance in general, but about sort of the ways that we tend to approach things in the US where the approach tends to be that when one does politics, that is what one does, right? That you become a quote activist and everything you do is within this sort of privileged political space, right? And what often happens is that other skills aren't really obtained, right? You get really good at like organizing and like scamming kinkos. Well, there's no kinkos anymore, but staples um, and, and those kinds of things. But what we're missing are skills like growing food, right? Generating power, learning how to communicate in ways that aren't able to be surveilled, right? Like again, when I'm doing operational security trainings, the guidance is never go disappear and vanish. The guidance is figure out how to compartmentalize your life, right? Um, how to live in the midst of doing what you're doing. And I think the Palestinian resistance is an incredible example of what happens when the gap between sort of everyday life and political spaces breaks down. And we really see that sort of resistance become part of the way that just things are structured, right? Um, I think that that's incredibly instructive for radicals in the United States who, who tend to operate in a very different sort of space. Well, uh, I'd like to thank you again for joining us. Um, yeah. Uh, do you want to, do you have anything you want to, uh, to plug YouTube channels, stuff like that? I have a YouTube channel. It's called uh, Rev and Rev, R-E-V and R-E-V-E, uh, where at some point in the uh, undetermined future, I will uh, put on uh, a sprawling video essay about um, the Gaza ghetto uprising, probably, um, maybe, hopefully. Uh, I have um, a novel called The Sodomites that um, you can find for free on Libgen, or uh, if you go to my Twitter page uh, at Adikalai. You can uh, find a link to buy it in print if you want to. Uh, it's a uh, you know it's about um, it's about well I'll, it, you know it's kind of, it, it's reminiscent of the Monkey Wrench Gang minus the patriarchy set in uh, contemporary Palestine Israel <laughs> and um, and. Yeah, cool. I guess we can end it at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep recording for a sec. If you have like a question for yeah, you, yeah, yeah. if it's good, maybe we can keep it. Um, but uh, my question is whether you agree with, um, and I'm, by the way, totally open for, for pushback about this uh, point of analysis as we're trying to make sense of everything, is whether you agree with this point about counterinsurgency cautioning against genocide. Like effectively enacting it, but um, but but definitely being very careful to caution against it, at yes. least publicly. I, so right? I think there's a, a number of things going on there, right? Um, so let's take 
what is called counterinsurgency as like the modern discourse of counterinsurgency, right? In that context, political will is really important and genocide tends to erode that, right? When you murder a bunch of people, it tends to to make the desire to continue uh, erode away, right? And we saw that with Iraq, also happened with Vietnam, right? Um, but <laughs> I think the other element of that is that that is about image, right? What is the perception of the occupation outside of the structure of the occupation, right? So if they can get away with genocide and it's the tactic that they feel they need to use, they'll do it. But it, it really, it's it's a question of visibility. So I think, say, in, in the Malaya situation, right, that happened and it happened in silence and people found out about it often later, right? Because of the way the British controlled the totality of the circumstance, it would be a lot harder to do that now. You know, everybody has a camera, right? Everyone has an internet connection. It would be a lot harder to silently carry out the mass deportation and death of a whole population of people um, without the whole world knowing. And I think that that really has shifted the calculus. However, the other part of this is if we think about counterinsurgency in the broader sense of ending insurgencies, <laughs> Well, genocide is a way to do that and not a technique that is all that rare, I think. Um, you, you see it domestically, right? I mean, this is like the purge after the Russian Revolution, right? You saw this with Stalinism, right? This was sort of a domestic version of this kind of eliminate, like wiping clean entire parts of the space so you can kind of exist without any friction, Right. So your, you know, castle in a cloud five year plan will go into effect or whatever. Uh, we saw that in Cambodia. It was a very similar situation. Right. Um, and that is a way to end an insurgency. And in both of those cases, it did. Right. But it also created conditions in which now, many years later, things like authoritarian communism seem absolutely absurd to people because of those exact situations. Right. And it's actually the tragedies that result often from what happens when counterinsurgency becomes genocidal um, that creates this very heavy push away from any kind of insurgent or, or radical activity. Right. It's this kind of exists as this cautionary tale of what happens when things go awry, you know. Um, and so it's one of those techniques I can see happening a lot more frequently in places where there's a lot stricter media control, for example, right? But war zones are not those places generally. And so if you're going to see that kind of behavior, often I would imagine at this point, you're going to see that kind of behavior in a lower intensity conflict before the conflict bursts out into an open war, right? You kind of see that with China and the Uyghurs. Right. It's this kind of approach of sort of before this becomes a problem, we're going to just eliminate this thing. Right. And they're committing cultural genocide in the process, but they're doing that before it becomes an issue. Right. Which is actually their exact argument as to what, why they're doing what they're doing. Like, that's not conjecture. That's what they say. Um, and that is a form of genocide. Right. And so they can get away with that to a degree because it is incredibly hard to get information out of Xinjiang, 
right? Xinjiang is out in the middle of nowhere, like the middle of nowhere. Um, they have full control over the internet. You know, that's the condition that you would have to meet to really get away with something like that, I think. So, yeah, I mean, that changes, that changes the situation dramatically, right? I think you're seeing right now, as you mentioned, the problem of using approaches which result in genocidal outcomes in our counterinsurgency campaign in Gaza, right? I mean, like, I, I think you're exactly right. Like, you, we are watching that happen. And I think that that is increasingly the cautionary tale, right? That you can't just roll in and, you know, detonate whole city blocks and stuff like that. It just, it, it can't function on the level of international political legitimacy. At least for Israel. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's important. Um, definitely. Well, and, you know, I mean, this this really gets into, I think, one of the bigger, more profound outcomes of what's gone on since early October. Um, is that the ability of the Israeli government to get away with doing things like that was entirely grounded in the notion that they have you know, massive amounts of international support from most of the West. Um, and that seems to be shaken a bit right now. That it's so hard to justify what they're doing that I think you're starting to hear more noise get made about it in ways that necessarily wouldn't have before. And I think that that's surprising to them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder about, I mean, you're absolutely right about uh, right, uh, the Malayan example. Um, absolutely. Uh, this really interesting kind um, well, and yeah. right, yeah. Uh, tragic, outrageous, right? Um, mm-hmm. Situation in China as well. Um, in Gaza, uh, it is well. It is very difficult uh, to ascertain, obviously. Um, but from what I'm able to gather, Israel has barely made a dent in uh, in the resistance's uh, military like capacities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If any, right? So, so this kind of this unprecedented rampage. Uh, once again, as kind of uh, world champions at killing at, kill, at killing children, right? Um, but, uh, but still they're not really showing any, um, any frontal interaction where they're, uh, where they're proving that they're able to target yeah. any Hamas militants at all. Like there were some, like the resistance did, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. announce a few deaths from, uh, from the shelling, but yeah. we're talking about less than dozens um, that's according to the resistance. M- meanwhile, Israel says that um, I don't know that at least uh, ten thousand ca- terrorists every day. Every day, they took out. They took out thirty five helicopters. You follow <laughs> exactly. Um, so, like, it, like even if you take at face value their um, their statements, like you count. Um, okay, so. Um, so last Monday, they reported that um, that dozens of terrorists were um, 
were killed in direct confrontations. They haven't shown they haven't shown any footage of that whatsoever. Uh, but but they claim it. Even if you tally that up, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I did that. Or I, I tried. You still find Jeez. only a few hundred, uh, right? Only like if you if you take them with their own word, and if you assume that okay, um, others died in in bombardments that uh, mm-hmm. the resistance hasn't announced, it will still be. Like and Hamas alone has what thirty thousand fighters just Maybe. in Gaza alone. So according to Israel, they have forty thousand, and that doesn't right. and that doesn't count other resistance. Well, that factions, doesn't count just 10, regular people, more, right? I think 000. that this is one of the other parts of the conflict that yeah. doesn't get talked about. And you know, I always go go back to the IRA when I'm thinking about the influence of quote regular people in contexts like this, right? Um, you know, early in the history of the IRA before they became an urban guerrilla movement, they were largely a community self-defense movement, right? And they would shoot at British soldiers and stuff, and they would invade their neighborhoods and things like that. And that did have a lot of effect. But the thing that made everything really, really difficult for the British was that literally nobody would cooperate with them about anything. They wanted to get food at a restaurant. Nobody would serve them. If they wanted to get directions, people would give them the wrong directions. Like people in neighborhoods would walk around and change all the street signs. So the British had no idea where they were going and they would walk them into ambushes. Right? Like so many people in those communities just had guns in their house and would just throw a t-shirt over their head and go shoot at some British soldiers whenever there'd be a conflict. Like that... You know, the Taliban functioned that way in a lot of ways, or the Iraqi resistance functioned that way in a lot of ways. We're like, sure, you had your organized factions, but there was also everybody else, right? And the everybody else creates the context those organized factions exist in, but also themselves engages in armed resistance that organized groups are not engaging in, right? Um, And so I think one of the things that is going to really shape what happens with this conflict ultimately um, is the way that the, if there is a breakdown in military capacity amongst the armed groups in Gaza, what that means as far as how the relationships within the resistance shift, because what I don't see is I don't see a uh, reduction in armed conflict. What I do see is a potential change in the form of that. Right. And like you were talking about the second intifada earlier um, and the ways that or or the first intifada, the way you started seeing this kind of rise of a certain kind of armed group. Right. Following that. But prior to that, it's there was armed resistance. It was done in a different way, though. It had a different form. And so I wonder. And there's no way to know this, but I wonder. um if they do make any actual infrastructural impact, what that ends up meaning, because it's not going to mean the end of Palestinian resistance. Right. I think this is the big question I've always got with what they're doing is do they think that if they level Gaza to the ground, that that will end the resistance because the entirety of history tells you it'll get worse. You know, there's almost no counterexamples to that. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check it's going down.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us.
and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.